Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. I am so glad that you are here today. So this is the first episode of Unstruct, and the first building that we have on is the Krause Gateway Center also locally known as the Come and Go Corporate Headquarters. So this building is located in Des Moines, Iowa. I live just outside of Des Moines, so I had the privilege of watching this building kind of work its way through, actually through design and then also through construction. Thomas Reynolds with Stillman Associates was the structural engineer in charge of the design of this building. And I think those of you that are local have probably seen this structure. If not, I want to describe it a little bit to you. So it is actually mind blowing how complex this structure is, but yet how simple and effortless it looks from the outside. So it's definitely a piece of art. It's six stories. It has extreme cantilevers. Some of the exterior columns are actually pound sign or hashtag symbols. We call them the super columns. It has a spire. Many of the floors are offset at some intricate angle. So it really adds to the visual interest of the building. There's a lot of glass, obviously, on all sides. Pretty much everything about this structure is custom and non-orthogonal. It has a rooftop garden. It's 160,000 square feet. It was built in 2019. And it is a lead gold building. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Thomas about all things Kraus Gateway Center. So if you could maybe just, as the structural engineer of this project, just kind of go through a rundown, just a brief description of the project. Sure. And it's funny, it's, my involvement with this project came up so randomly in my office. 
It's a, I actually wasn't involved from the beginning. Um, there was another associate in my office who was part of it, you know, with a senior, senior engineer and a partner. And, uh, he ended up moving on from some, he went to the DOB in New York and, um, you know, they kind of came to me and was like, you think you could fit this in? It's like, I think I'm going to make time to fit this in. You know, you don't turn <laughs> down a project like this. Uh, these are kind of those projects that you want to work on, those kind of career defining projects, at least I think. Especially once I had a look at the drawings and saw what it was. And so this is a steel frame building, six stories uh, with a bulkhead above that, two levels below grade of parking, concrete on metal deck. And two of the most interesting features of the building were that above the fourth floor, uh, the fifth and sixth floors kind of rotated out. I'm doing it in my hands like everyone can see me. Uh, but they rotated about 47 degrees off the normal axis, which made for some really interesting framing and cantilevers and things like that. So what, at what phase did you get brought in then? How far along was the project? Like, uh, I want to say about 20 or 30% BD, so to speak. So, you know, we had done our concept designs and our kind of schematics, so to speak. But, I mean, you do this, right? So you know kind of what level you're at at that point where mm-hmm. not everything's fully set in stone, but you've set the path forward, right? You know what material the building's going to be. You likely understand the gravity and the lateral system. You just you haven't really done coordination yet. So it was an interesting point to be involved. And it's I remember, you know, you and I were talking about this prior to we started recording. When I first looked at the drawings, my first thought was, I don't think I understand how this building works. <laughs> and if you've ever looked at a set of drawings and that's your first thought, you're like, you start getting nervous. You're like, I have to be missing something. And you start tracing the load path and you're looking at the framing. You know, of course, obviously eventually you figure it out, but it doesn't jump out at you. When you start tracing it, you're like, wait, that's a cantilever. That's supported by another cantilever. That cantilever is hung from two floors above. So it's, it was, it was funky. It was, it was really exciting to start to get through and understand. Oh my gosh. So was the floor plan pretty much set at that point? Yeah, it was. And it's it was interesting too. During concept and SD, the building originally had a giant hole in the middle. Almost okay. like a, I'll say a donut, for lack of a better term. And uh, like in the middle, it was all open air. Basically like a giant open air atrium and there was planting and other biophilia, I'll call it both. But that eventually, you know, was closed off. I think the owner didn't like that. But that was probably the biggest turn. And early concept designs too, if you've seen the building now, uh, or if you've ever driven past it and have an opportunity to look at it on the website, the bottom three floors are, I'll say straight, right? They're on axis, and it's the top two floors that rotate. Originally, it was the bottom three floors that rotated, and then the top two floors that came straight. So they kind of flipped okay. that eventually uh, to kind of align with the surrounding buildings and the way the lighting came and things like that. But that decision happened right before I got on. So that decision was architecturally driven and not like structurally driven. It wasn't like you guys as a structural engineer saying this is going to work better this way. It was something that they wanted visually. Yeah. And again, you know this or any structural engineers listening, we rarely have the opportunity to dictate the shape of the building, right? That's something that usually mm-hmm. comes to us from the architect. So in that particular case, yes, it was an architectural decision. Uh, you know, we were certainly part of helping them understand what that means as far as framing. What does that do to your lateral system? How does that change the, you know, the foundations, the other frames? Gotcha. So some of the key features, you kind of touched on them a little bit of this building is the fact that there's long cantilevers or extreme cantilevers. When you got involved with the project, was the length of those cantilevers, did that remain the same all the way through or did that have to dial in a little bit or? It, no, it, it mostly did. Like you said, dialed in is a great way to put it because it changed by a few feet. It didn't change by 15 feet. For the most part, they were set. And the most interesting part about it, and really the, the showpiece of this building is what we affectionately call the nosing, right? That's what's wrapped around the perimeter of the building. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the nosing was its own, I think it was 17 feet long, the top leg. It had two legs. The set, top leg was about 17 feet long, the bottom leg was, I think, three or four. But that nosing was attached to a 60-foot cantilever or was attached to a 45-foot cantilever at the third floor. And I think the fifth and sixth floor were close to uh, 35 or 40. Um, so that's what I'm talking about, where you kind of had those cantilevers on cantilevers. Uh-huh. And understanding that and how that load path worked was really one of our biggest pieces of the puzzle. And I've said this when I've had an opportunity to present, is this is one of the few buildings that I did, at least at the time, where I always felt like the, the gravity system was more challenging than the lateral system, mm-hmm. right? It was tracing that load path from a hung cantilever element from a different cantilever element, you know, back to columns, especially where back to a column line where not all of them trace down to the ground. It was interesting to get through. Yeah. Well, and I think like something we haven't touched on yet on this project is the fact that the whole concept of it was to be light and airy, which means a thin plate, a thin profile. So you didn't not only had to worry about not worry, but you not only had to be challenged by these cantilevers, you also had to make them have a slim profile, correct? You're exactly right. Yeah, you're well informed. So it's one of the reasons that made roll shapes really challenging for these long cantilevers. So we ended up having to utilize a lot of built-up plate girders. And for the most part, those plate girders wanted to be, I think, a max of 27 inches and even most of them were 24. Again, if you've done this design, we had plate girders that were, you know, 24 inches deep that had 3,000 kit-foot moments in them. You know, and I'll talk about MEP coordination a little later on as we get to it. But, you know, we started cutting holes in those beams that had loads like that. And even the typical floor framing, our typical floor framing spanned about 30 feet. And we ended up using W10s, right? Oh Almost any gosh. structural engineer listening to this would say, you're nuts. We had W10s spanning 30 feet. Well, they also had 65 studs. They were 10 by 88s and they were cambered an inch and a half. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that thin floor plate was incredibly important. That was a really big piece of the puzzle. Oh, so crazy and so fascinating. Well, and then like with the cantilevers, another thing. So as structural engineers, when you're designing a gravity system, we're designing for dead loads, which is like the self-weight of everything, and then live loads. So people, furniture, all the things that are changing throughout the lifespan of the building. But for you, and then also like snow loads too, but like for you with a cantilever, you know, so many times we can just put all of that downward gravity load on and design an element. But for you with cantilevers... That's not your worst case condition. You could have a lighter load that creates a higher cantilever or a higher upward deflection, right? You're exactly right. It's an astute point too. And it's it's one of the things we realized. And anyone who models, the first thing you do is you throw an area load over the whole floor, right? And then you start to see how it reacts. But you're exactly right. With the cantilevers, it's what if there's a fireworks show and you have everyone standing at one side of the window and the whole other side of the building is empty. The load is totally different on a cantilever effect. So we had to do a lot of different pattern loading and understand really what is our worst case. And a lot of times, to your point, it wasn't if the entire floor is loaded with 100 PSF worth of public occupancy. A lot of times it was, what if everybody's standing out at the tip and there's no one on the back end? So those are different patterns that we did have to look at. It was, again, I had never done something like that before, right? There's skip loading and other things that you typically do, but I hadn't looked at it like that. That was my first time getting into that. So did you have to do or were you able to do any sort of scale testing or like creating little elements and actually putting load on it? Like physical load, not only hypothetical, you know, theoretical load. We didn't do like a mock-up or any kind of testing like that. Um, but what we did do was as uh, when we worked with the construction manager, the construction manager was running companies. 
And one of the main things we did was the way we controlled deflection at these cantilevers, well, we did what we called kinks, right? So a lot of the tips of the cantilevers were set up from their theoretical zero, zero. So, uh, and even those ranged, those numbers ranged from an inch up to, I think, almost like six and a half inches. Wow. Um, so we worked with the construction manager and helped them understand how much preload they needed to add to the tip of those cantilevers so that to set them at zero, zero, and then slowly release it as they added load. And we actually built a staged construction model and worked with Ryan companies to understand how much load will you have on at this time period? You know, when are you adding the pavers? When are you pouring the slabs? When will the glass go in? And we had to understand what that meant for the tips of those cantilevers as they took each step. Gotcha. So to maybe understand, like for me to understand this a little bit better. So you have a pitch to the cantilever, which means that it is physically higher than the rest of the member. Install it. The contractor is putting temporary load on that. And then as you put permanent load on it, you're able to take off the temporary load so that that deflection or so that that downward, hopefully net zero-ish is the same throughout. Is that right? You're exactly right. And it's the interesting part about that was too, it actually couldn't end up up because it has to drain. You need to slope the drain. You had to get water off it. So it actually ending up up if we did it too far would have been a disaster because then everything right. would have started pitching back to the building was the last thing you want. So that, that was an interesting process. And it's, we did a lot of that modeling in, uh, in ETABs. You know, it was a nonlinear model. It was a challenging model. And we supplemented that with this massive Excel spreadsheet. And accurately predicted, you know, using stiffness and statics and all this other stuff. I want to say there was like 60 cantilevered points. He accurately predicted like 48 of them to within a quarter inch. It was crazy. That's so cool. We couldn't believe how well it worked out. We were even surprised. I'll have to admit it. I feel like that's the culmination of what we do as structural engineers, right? Like we're trying to predict how it's going to behave in the natural environment. And when you were able to do that with that amount of accuracy in something that you couldn't be wrong on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was an interesting piece of the puzzle. Like I said, that was something I had never done before. And and working with the contractor and seeing how they wanted to do it, you know, and I ended up just being steel cables pulled down to the bottom. And when we had first talked about it, when we were seeing too much movement, you know, one of the things that evolved the most in the design was really that exterior program, I'll call it, right? Mm -hmm. What loads are out there? What landscaping? How big are the pavers? And some of the initial program had these things just deflecting way too much. We were seeing nine, ten inches of deflection, things that just weren't tenable. And one of the things that made us realize why those were untenable was because you literally couldn't preload. You couldn't get enough load on the cantilever to pull down 10 inches on a 27-inch deep plate there. Those sentences just don't go together. So it's interesting. That was a piece of the evolution of it, was literally how are you going to build this and level it more so than the structural aspect of it. That brings like a whole nother level of complexity and also like a great appreciation and respect for contractors and how we have to collaborate with them. Because like we can design it on paper, but then there's the the whole means and methods, the whole implementation period. And how do you get that to work? Yeah. And that, that part was exciting, too. And it's one of the things we did that I think worked really well. And I'm a big advocate for getting in the room as often as possible. And I was just coming off, um, we did a huge project in New York. Uh, we did the New York Police Academy out in College Point, Queens in New York. And one of the things that we did there was they had a project office. They had everybody there, the MEP, the structural, the architect, the contractor. And I happened to sit, the contractor was basically where the whiteboard is behind me, about three feet behind me if people can't see the video. 
And whenever we were working with them, I was literally able to spin my chair around and say, hey, look at this detail. So whenever the opportunity presents itself where Ryan Companies or the Erector was a company called Danny's, I had an opportunity to be in the room with them. I was in Des Moines for days at a time, just working through details with them. And we loved it. I loved getting in a room with them. You know, we worked in adjustability into our details. How are you guys going to set this? How is it going to be fabricated, right? The nosing ended up coming out in 60 foot sections. That was something that we worked through with the erector. How big can it be before you can't truck it there? So that was a really exciting part of all this was sitting in a room with them, getting around a table with them and collaborating, not just with the architectural team, but with the construction team too, you know, the erector, the steel fabricator, the CM. That was a pretty cool part of this. That's so cool. So back to these these cantilevers, I'm just thinking about this. So part of them are exterior, part of them are interior. The conditioning of those spaces are completely different. <laughs> so what did you have to do? Because by nature, a cantilevered element has to have continuity all the way out to the end to work and to transfer that moment at uh, the interface. What did you have to do to mitigate or give attention to those thermal aspects. Yeah, so most of the time when you come across a, I'll call it a so-called thermal break, you know, you start looking at the Shoke anchors or Halton are two of the names that stand out the most. You know, you look at those pads, whether it be bolted through or, you know, in concrete, there's a pad and you run rebar through. And we have started out with those. And, you know, anyone who knows costs about those knows they're probably at least a thousand bucks a pop. They're expensive, but they do work very well. Um, And they get incorporated into a ton of projects. I have another project where I'm using hundreds of them. And it was funny is when we first were looking at those details and talking that through, uh, OPN was the architect of record in Des Moines. And we happened to be at their office and they said, like earlier that week, a representative from Aralon had come to their office to present the thermal break paint. The timing was incredibly fortuitous. And they said, well, let's look at this stuff. Uh, I said, you know, I had never used this stuff before. I don't really know it. So we did a bunch of research on it, got in contact with their reps. It was developed, I think, like in conjunction with NASA like originally to be used on like spaceships. And basically, you just have a continuous beam, and wherever your thermal break is, you apply the paint for, I want to say it was 18 inches on either side of the thermal break, and it basically functions the same way the thermal break pad would. It sounds like magic when I say it. Like even saying it out loud, doesn't this stuff can't be real. <laughs> uh, but we used it at every cantilever. You know, we talked it through. We looked at the cost. We talked to the reps. They showed all the thermal reports, and they did actually do a mock-up on that, too. They, like, they tested that. Okay. And it actually worked out really well. And it's, you know, if you ever happen to come across pictures of the construction, it's the yellow paint on the cantilevers. That's how I could always tell the facade line, too. Uh, And right (laughs) wherever that yellow paint is is where the facade was attached, and it extends to either side. So that ended up working out really well because it got rid of those thermal breaks. It got rid of that additional design where having, like you said, having to transfer that moment through the joint, it really is one beam and continuous. Yeah. One thing that was a little simpler on the project. Yeah. One thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was one piece of the puzzle that, that worked out uh, very, very easily. Uh, I feel like they could probably charge a lot for that paint because it's a really simple process huh? compared to what it would have had to be. Yeah. So can we go back to uh, the interior space? And so you're talking about the W10 by uh, 88s? I believe there were 88s in some spots, 60s where we could, so they're not too heavy. Uh, we don't want to kick up the steel weight of the building and make it too expensive. But Yeah. 
<laughs> so for the listeners that aren't familiar with steel beams, um, the first number, so W10 by 88 would be, the 10 would be the depth, the 88 would be the weight per lineal foot. Um, so you can imagine that it gets very heavy, very fast. But let's talk about, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but the mechanical side of this. So you have to, as the structural engineer, have to make the building stand up. And then we also have to accommodate heating and air conditioning of the space, uh, which means ductwork. How was that accomplished or how did you coordinate with the mechanical engineer on the heating and air conditioning side of it? You know, working in any project like this, uh, ceiling height is king. Right? They want the ceiling as high as is humanly feasible. And one of the things that's really interesting in working with an architect, architect like Renzo Piano's office is not just that they want the max ceiling height they can, is that the ceiling relates to something else, right? The ceiling relates to the shades. The shades relate to the shade pocket. The shades relate to the window sill. That relates to something else, which relates to the floor. And there's this cascading effect when you move anything, right? So when they get the ceiling where it wants to be, the ceiling wants to stay where they put it from the start. Um, so that's where that thin floor plate comes in. And so... Uh, when we started our coordination with the MEP team, you know, it became quickly quickly obvious that we were going to need a lot of MEP penetrations uh, through the steel beam. So, uh, again, for any listener who might not be familiar with this, what we do often to accommodate mechanical engineering, whether it be uh, duct runs or electrical conduits or plumbing piping, we'll physically run them through the depth of the steel beam. So this way, you can put your ceiling closer to the underside of the steel beam. You don't have to make it too deep. In this case, we did that about a thousand times throughout the building. And, you know, uh, AISC, this, you know, this, um, steel organization, they give you guidelines for the kind of penetrations you're allowed to put in beams. Uh, we ignored and broke every single one. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't often like admitting that to people because, you know, architects jump on that. Like, wait, you can make it bigger? No, 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 please stick with the guidelines. <laughs> um, but truth is, if you really dig into the analysis, you can do it. Um, obviously, you know, I never, I joke with architects and MVP engineers. I never want to write you up my check. Um, but if you're down to physically, it doesn't work unless you can do this. You know, there's ways to reinforce the beam, both with vertical and horizontal stiffeners. Uh, you know, we did things where we called them notches, where we physically cut out, say, the bottom seven inches of the beam. So that was actually really interesting. But it was, that was a challenging part of the coordination because you, again, you know this. It's so iterative, right? They don't, put a duct there and then it just stays there, right? Maybe they realize that the line it hits something else, they have to move it, so now we have to reject the analysis. And that analysis isn't quick either, you know, depending on how drastic it is, we have to do full plate models rather than just spreadsheets. And it's not it's not just a button you press and ETS that says, hey, put a hole here and check my beam. There was one guy we had as part of our team that he was doing that almost full time. You know, as his role in the project, not full time for the week, but that was his role. Sure. Just do uh, MEP coordination and, and check this finding for all the holes and the notches. Which is crazy because like sometimes I think, I mean, and that's human nature to want to be like, what's my rule of thumb? Like, just give me a rule of thumb. But it's so much more complex than that, that it took one structural engineer working full time to design and analyze all of those penetrations. So that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And it's it's the kind of thing too, whereas, you know, most people do shy away from that amount of penetrations because they really have to coordinate. And especially once things start moving around in the field. And that was, again, I'll give the team a lot of credit. That was the difference between maybe working with a design-built contractor is they were the same people designing and putting it in, right? So often you'll get to the field, you'll get the construction administration and things get moved around. Contractor doesn't like it, they want to move it. In this case, the people drawing it were the people installing it. So gotcha. 
you didn't have that much of that. There wasn't that much coordination during um, construction administration, which I think made the process a lot, a lot smoother. So Ryan was pretty, like, they were involved from the design phase then because it was design build. So that piece of the puzzle, I should say, was design build, not the entire building. The entire building was design build. We had some early packages, but uh, for the most part, it was traditional uh, design build. But one of the things we also did, not to dive too far into the structure administration, uh, as far as shop drawings go, one of the most boring parts of what we do, coordinating shop drawings and reviewing steel shop drawings, we did it in Bluebeam Studio, again, which is a tool everybody uses at this point for collaboration. But it was nice to do it in there because we did all our reviews concurrently. And it was, it's one of those weird things where you send it around and the architect's like, all right, everyone used this very specific color for your comments. Mm-hmm. So we would knew, we would know who the comments were when they popped up. So, you know, we were able to do that collaboratively too, even from states away when I wasn't mm-hmm. with them, uh, and understand what, if anything, had to change. And they could even see our comments when we were adding stiffeners and telling them the open would be close, what have you. They were able to see that in real time and to keep that collaboration going. That's, yeah, that's great, right? And I feel like that's one area where industry has really changed over the last few years. Like I remember when I started out, not to get too nostalgic, but getting the hard copies of shop drawings, five copies, you do your red lines in whatever color, and then you physically transfer them to each sheet over and over and waste a ton of time. And like the shipping time too, or, you know, courier time to ship from here to there and everything. So to have that all electronically in one file, everyone has their color is one way that our industry has really uh, moved ahead a little bit. So <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine going back to that way. Uh, you know, obviously people talk about the state of the industry and, you know, how fast we move now and things and um, how beneficial it can be. It's a, it's, it's a really interesting part of what we do. I, I can't picture this building getting done without having access to tools like that. You know, like Reddit, like that, uh, like Google Studio. I, I don't know how we would have done it. And think, like, in your practice, how many buildings are that way? Like, 20 years ago, how it went to have been possible, right? Which is so fascinating. So how many structural engineers did you have working on this project? 14 people that put time into this building for my office. Um, you know, the typical team is probably closer to six or seven. There's probably another four or five Reddit operators. But, yeah, over the course of it, you know, break off tasks for stairs and uh, landscaping wall or, you know, the mechanical pit or things like that. We ended up breaking out a lot of that. But yeah, the typical team was about six weeks. And what was the design phase? Like, uh, how long was it? I want to say, I remember reading the plaque. I went to the opening and they have a plaque kind of in the lobby that says, you know, has like a uh, Renzel piano shaking hands with, uh, I believe it's Kyle Krause. And that they have that dated. And I want to say it was almost four years to the date. But when those two shook hands, the one I was standing in the lobby. Okay. Yeah, for a building of this size, it's not that. That's not that bad. That actually seems pretty good. No, and like not only the size of it, but the complexity of it. It is a piece of art. Everything is intricate. Everything is custom. You know, like sometimes people are like, "Oh, we, you know, maybe our windows will be a little bit custom." But this, like the entire project, is very custom like down to the plate girders like you're saying yeah the plate girders i mean even to the glass I, the glass in the front of the building that faces out towards the papa john sculpture park i think at that time maybe they still are with some of the tallest unsupported glass panels in the u.s uh, wow. because the second floor steps in and it has a conference room right in the front that has this dramatic lookout into the sculpture park but that whole lobby entrance area those panels run from the ground floor up to the third before they're ever laterally braced so yeah, even even the facade, you know, it didn't stop at the structure at all. 
Right, right. Okay, so uh, speaking of the exterior of the building, so uh, there are some columns that are exterior of the building that are famously called the super columns. Can you explain those a little bit? So I think we have um, pretty high embrace lengths there. Can we just talk about that a little bit, I guess? Sure. The reason those super columns came about was two things. On the one side, like I said before, we had the building rotating, right? So those two columns, at least on the right side in my head and plan, that's why they're never part of the building at the lower floors. They don't come anywhere near them. They only support the top two floors that rotate out. On the left side of the building, uh, the floors don't physically meet them. Um, so again, that's why they're totally unbraced. They were about 67 feet tall unbraced. I looked at the reactions of the floors. There was four of them. The reactions were anywhere from 1,000 kips up to 1,500 kips. Um, so you have 67 foot tall unbraced column with that amount of load in it. Again, we went through a number of iterations. You know, we looked at roll shapes and roll shapes want to be 40s or some 14, 808 or something. It just, it didn't make sense. Um, so, okay. So can you pause on that? Okay. So the, you just gave off two sizes because I really want to touch on this and what you did as a structural engineer. Like we'll get to that eventually, but okay. So if you were just to design this a quick, easy design, it would be what you were saying. Like, do you say a W40? I want to say the, the it was probably a 44262, but even that one was challenging, again, because, you know, it has strong axis in one direction and it's fairly weak in the other. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to say that one might have even buckled. The other column was the 14808, which is, as far as I recall, the heaviest W14 they made. I don't remember how thick the web is, but that, you know, that flange is something like four inches thick. It's a little absurd. Um, and I think they only roll it once or twice a year, right? That's not a normal shape that comes out. <laughs> So even if you just dealt with the absurdity of the cost of those four columns, it might be challenging to just get it physically. You know, so that's when we started looking at something custom, something built up. You know, and the original iterations were, you know, a tube with flanges. I forget some of the other iterations before we landed on the so-called hashtag. But, you know, it's like I just mentioned where we had to look at buckling. Obviously, we mentioned the unbraced height. The hashtag is equally stiff in both directions. We met, you know, we matched the profile on all four sides. So that was a lot of what we went to too and went through too, especially with RTBW. They love, one of the things that I love that RTBW does, they proportion everything, right? So everything wants to look a specific way related to what's adjacent to it. We didn't want to have flange sticking out two inches on one side and say four inches on the other side. Everything was kind of equally done around the perimeter of it. And it worked out really nice. I actually thought it was pretty great. Yeah. And it, it creates that light and airy feel that they want, right? Or that the building warrants. And so what's the size of that, the super column? What's the outer dimension of that? I want to say it was 22 by 22. Okay. So I believe, um, again, I think we did an 18 inch square in the middle and then two inch fins on either side. Gotcha. So if you would have done just a, a W section, um, one, you would have had the either the W14 that was like super huge four inch flanges <laughs> yeah. or just go to a W44, which would be 44 inches big and look massive. Yeah, it would have looked kind of ridiculous, right? It would have proportionally <laughs> just wouldn't have looked right. It, like you said, it would have taken up space. You have that beautiful kind of open air pavilion there and it just would have taken up a ton of space and it wouldn't have looked right compared to the rest of the building. Like you said, it's directly, not directly adjacent, but adjacent to those super columns. You have all this glass, all this openness, all this light just beaming in, putting this giant, huge element. It it didn't make sense. We rarely get to play Architect. I think that was one time where we came back on it. There's something else we could do built up here. This just doesn't feel right. Well, good job. It looks nice. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) 
Well, let's move on to like the lateral design of the building, I guess. So for listeners that don't uh, aren't familiar with structural engineering, the lateral, uh, every building has to have gravity support and then also have lateral support. So lateral support means horizontal loads that we're typically dealing with, which is either going to be wind loads or earthquake loads and determining which one controls of those two. So how did you uh, get this building to stand up for those horizontal lateral loads? It's interesting. Um, Des Moines is not very seismically active, thankfully. Uh, the seismic loads were very low. Uh, wind was the controlling factor. And when most building, most people start where looking to put their lateral elements, you start with the core, right? You look at the elevator core, you look at your stair cores, things like that. Uh, so we did the exact same thing. We had brace frames around the elevator core, but not around the entire perimeter of the core. Obviously, you have all the openings on one side, so it's challenging to do that. But we did have two brace frames on either side. Uh, the other side was actually open, so we didn't bring it even around on the third side. As you might imagine, for a building of this size and how heavy it was, that wasn't enough, right? So we had to supplement with moment frames. The moment frames were even a challenge because anyone who knows structural design knows moment frames are incredibly flexible, right? <laughs> so um, depending on how tall they are, they just they don't resist the drift very well. You know, and if you've ever done a building with moment frames, you have to put them just everywhere to get your building to function properly. And in this building, especially around the perimeter, you know, I mentioned before, the second floor kind of steps in away from the perimeter. So... A lot of our perimeter columns were 60 feet tall. And not only were they 60 feet tall, we only had two of them outside of the super columns that came all the way down to the ground. So, you know, we engaged as many columns as we could as a moment frame. And I remember when I was working with the engineer, we were looking through our ETEVS model, and she kept saying to me, she said, I just, I can't get this thing to work to drift. No matter how many times I tried, no matter how many times I upsized these columns, you know, within the parameters that we wanted to fit, we couldn't get it to work for drift. And originally, the original idea for the building that actually came from RPBW's office was to just use the super columns, was to cable tie all the super columns and has that and have that be the lateral system. And we found that when we tried that, the reactions at the base were just too huge. We couldn't resolve them, uh, especially with the two levels of parking below grade. It was just the elements that we needed to resolve those loads were just too big. It just didn't make sense. So our first thought was, you know, we were just off too. I don't remember the exact limits. Let's say, you know, the max, maximum drift of the building was three inches. We were seeing like three and a half, something like that. So, you know, we knew we had to trim it, but not something crazy. So we said, why don't we try engaging the super columns? But what we had to do was when we engaged them, they were obviously this giant stiff element, even though they were on brace, they were this giant stiff element. And when you put the cables on them, again, you have a giant, a very well-functioning tension element that would suck up a lot of load. And we didn't want that to happen. So we only needed it to function, I'll say a little bit, right? I know that's not very qualitative, but we only needed them to function a little bit. So we used, again, the nonlinear function in ETABs, and we figured out how much load could these super columns take just to limit the drift by that additional half inch that we needed. That number turned out to be about 40 kips in each of those tension cables. And we worked with, um, we worked with a company called Tripyramid, on a connection of those tension cables to the base to put a spring in there and physically limit the load that could get into that cable to 40 kips. So, hold up. So, like, just to back up a little bit. So, yes, um, in structural engineering, the stiffest element is going to take the most load. So, what you're saying is that this became a very stiff element and was going to take a bunch of load that you didn't want it to take. So, 
to mitigate that, you put a spring in there. Is this correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> That's so complicated. <laughs> yeah. It, again, it's one of the funkier things I've ever done in my career. Um, but it's, we looked at it a number of times and, you know, we, we talked to the designers from Tri-Pyramid, like, you know, can you actually do this? Is this a real thing? You know, they, we put in a spring, we put in a fuse pin at the top. Um, and it, it really does limit the amount of action that wants to get, like you said, to that stiff element. It stops it from taking too much load. So you're still engaging the moment frames. You're still engaging the brace frames. And only if the building starts drifting too much will you engage those tension cables. Um, so that, that was pretty cool too. And as you might imagine, they have to be tensioned, you know, to some minimum number so that you don't get slacking, right? Uh, they weren't cables. I keep calling them cables. They were rods. Um, right. again, okay. they wanted to be table, uh, tensioned to some minimum number so they don't start to slack. So we have to account for that too, where they have to take some, but you don't want them to take too much. Yeah, talk about a delicate balance for sure. I feel like uh, like if there was a competition for ETABS models um, and the complexity of them, you guys should totally submit your model because it's probably super fascinating and complex. Thank you, thank you. We did a, we did a bunch of them. You know, we had our. It's funny. It's what I've learned from modeling and what we do our best to kind of preach in the office is you don't want to make your models too complicated, right? You don't want to do everything in one model. They can literally just get too complex. They're impossible for results out of, and you can just drive the program crazy. Um, so especially with a building of this size and complexity, you start having to break things out. You know, when we did a ton of studies, pulling out the lateral system, doing that's on its own, making sure it's functioning the way you wanted to. Um, so we did, yeah, we did a number of models. We didn't just have one giant one. We did a number of things pulling out, especially for the lateral stuff, uh, especially when we started introducing the springs. You have to do it for nonlinear. Uh, especially when we did the stage construction too, that's another nonlinear model. So uh, those were a couple of, of breakouts that we had to work our way into. I think that's such a good point because yeah, if your models get too complex, then it does not become intuitive anymore. I think as structural engineers, if you have a basic three element model, you know, with a moment frame, you kind of know gut check what what's supposed to happen. But when it's so complex, you have no idea anymore. Yeah, like I said, I'll use the word preach again. We say it all the time. You know, pull out your moment frames, pull out your brace frames, do a 2D bent. Just take a look at it. Just see what it's supposed to do just from a basic statics perspective. Sometimes it can be so hard to read that in a giant model. Definitely try and keep them less complex if possible. Great advice. <laughs> so what's the most unexpected thing that came up during this project for you? Unexpected thing. You know, I, we talked about it before. It's probably the preloading. Um, and, you know, kinking up of the cantilevers that we discussed before. Uh, and I think more, not that it's unexpected, I think it was just that I didn't have it in my head as something we were going to have to do. We've done other work where you do kind of deflection diagrams and we put them on the drawings. Like, this is the first time we've done that. We literally slapping a deflection diagram on the drawing, just saying, hey, this is, you know, how this building is going to move. Uh, and more often than not, it's, we do do that and it's just internal coordination with the architect. So, you know, by the way, just making sure this is okay. This is how everything's going to move. Right. Well, it's the interaction of the architectural elements and the structural elements, because some architectural elements can only withstand a certain amount of deflection. So that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, it's continuing that theme is to interaction with the facade, because now the facade isn't always out at the tip, where again, often if you're looking at spandrels or your facade movements, you're, almost, you're always looking at the edge of the building. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to study deflections way set in from the perimeter. And look at that and understand that. And the way the facade was too, the facade didn't run from the floor to the underside of the framing. The facade had what they called the downstand fin, where the top of the facade was four foot six inches below the underside of a framing. So 
we had this giant moment four foot six inches down from the bottom of our framework that mm-hmm. anyone who knows anything about structural engineering knows how the hell do you resolve that? And then even working with the facade contractor when they got on board, they had a maximum rotation of the glass that they'd be able to handle. And we had to extrapolate that to the maximum rotation of the bottom of our beam. So we had to understand, you know, how to put kickers in and brace the bottom of the beam, where can we do stiffeners? You know, that was a bunch of plate models and really getting into the very, very nitty gritty of how does the bottom flange of the beam physically rotate when you're applying that moment to it uh, in torsion. Because again, anyone who's checked the white flange beam for torsion knows that you can get it to work, right? They can shake out. Uh, and often you just put some web stiffeners in it and things like that to brace it, or you put a, what we'll call a roll beam, something perpendicular to it to brace the bottom flange. Uh, but in this case, we needed to not only brace it, but understand how it moved. And if you broke out the, uh, you know, the degrees of movement that they gave us in radiance, the movement was very, very minimal for this glass to work. So we got into some plate modeling of that too. That was definitely unexpected as we were going through that, understanding the, the kind of minutia there and those really tight constraints. Yeah, and you have these uh, jewel box of <laughs> your glazing there because you were saying, right, like the window pan or the, the glazing was something that they hadn't done before, right? Yeah, and it's, again, I'll get the um, the facade designers were front um, and I'll give them, they did this really cool detail too at the base of it. They called it their rocker detail. It basically sits in a trough and almost sits on full bearings so it's able to literally slide back and forth. Again, that movement is pretty imperceptible, you know, the, the detail I'm describing is, is very, very small, but I, I never, again, I've never seen something like that that was able to give it that movement at the base. You know, usually you see it in like a slip connection or an oversized pole or something like that. It was the first time I saw a detail like that. I thought it was pretty innovative. Nice little cradle for it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, all of this is super fascinating, but what, like to you, what was the most fascinating part of this project? The amalgamation of all these things, I'd say, seeing it all come together, it, it for me personally, uh, like I said, this was, I'm at Silman 17 years, um, so this was, you know, four or five years ago for me. It was the first time I was doing a lot of it. We all designed for deflection, we all have designed cantilevers for wind, for seismic. Uh, but, you know, what I described with the, the springs in those uh, tension locks was the first time I'd done something like that. So, and then, like I described with the cantilevers earlier, and, you know, working with the contractor to do preloading, uh, seeing all those things to come together that, you know, I personally was doing for the first time. Uh, but certainly had a team of support, not just in my office, but with the people we were working with. I hate talking about ourselves, but we bill ourselves as collaborators, right? It's something we enjoy doing. Like, I, I love this, what we're doing right now. I love talking about structure. I love sitting in meetings and talking through uh, details and problems with architects. So uh, seeing that kind of culminate and come together was, was really, really exciting. That's awesome. Well, and as you're talking, Thomas, like, I can't help but think, like, this is engineering judgment to, like, the next level. And this is, like the service that Silman brought to the project, right? Like like you had to take all of those concepts, all of those just engineering background, all of the theoretical things, and then you had to transfer it into like this artistic, you had to take it to the next level as far as engineering judgment and use all of the basic stuff to go to this way more enhanced level. And I think that is like, you know, that's the culmination of a career. I feel like that project. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you saying it. And it's it's one of the reasons I was harping on kind of what we'll call so-called breakout models before is we did all this, right? You know, mm-hmm. and to your point, you do have that engineering judgment, but, you know, the partners that have been here for 30 years do breakout models, right? You know, they sometimes will say, yeah, I think it's something we can do. And then they throw a 2D bend in reason. We're like, wow, this is something we can do. I could scale this. 
you know, so right. it's, yeah, with this, absolutely that judgment for sure and putting all our experience together, you know, it's followed up by those, those simple statics and those simple calcs for sure. Yeah. So cool. So on a lighter note, if this building had a theme song, what would it be? It's funny. I, I thought about this question for a while. I started running through, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a hip hop fan. I listen to a lot of rap. And I was like, I don't think any of these apply to this building. <laughs> and I'm, it, it, I'm not a Beatles fan, but the first song that came to my mind was Hard Day's Night. <laughs> I don't know why, but it just it popped with my head. And now I hate it because it's playing over and over in my head. <laughs> um, and I think I'm going to make some corny correlation though, to what we did. A lot of times during, uh, towards the end of the design phase, towards the end of CDs, um, what we did was we got teams from my office to go to Des Moines once a week, probably for almost like two months. Uh, so we had, uh, at any given time, we had a team of four from my office. We had a Revit operator, an associate, a senior, and another engineer would go and spend three days sitting in the uh, architect's office, work with the architects from OPW, from OPN, the contractors, and literally just sit with them and coordinate. Um, and over those three days, we typically spent, you know, a solid full day there. Especially as we got closer and closer to the deadline, we were often there late. You know, this happens during the deadline. Uh, you know, we'd have dinner with them and we'd work into the night. So <laughs> that's why it reminded me, I said, this actually feels appropriate, right? Like we'd actually work. We were never there until midnight. You know, it wasn't like that. But uh, often, like I said, you know, we'd have dinner with them. They'd bring in pizza or whatever else and, and we'd work until it was dark out. And it was, it was enjoyable. It, it wasn't something that felt like a burden at any time. Yeah, working like a dog, though, right? Isn't that what the song says? Isn't that the lyric? Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay, so like another just little random thing. So I have this theory, um, you know, working in the industry for 20 years, I feel like there's more left-handed than right-handed structural engineers. So I'm going to uh, continue down this path with taking a tally. So are you left-handed or right-handed? Wow. <laughs> yeah, keep that yes. tally going. It's funny Thank you for reinforcing my oh, theory. I'm, I'm a bit of an anomaly, though. The only thing I can even attempt to do with my left hand is right. And okay. not even that well, frankly. Anything else, like any sport I've attempted to play or anything else, I do with my right hand. But writing, I'm a lefty. I feel like this could be a philosophical conversation because I am left-handed as well. Obviously, why would I have this this little tally going if I wasn't? But I also, like, I golf right-handed. Like, yeah, I play same. so many sports. Not that I'm great at sports. I suck at sports. But I am right-handed for many other things. But I think part of it is, like, just, like, when we're learning how to do these things, like, that's how we're taught. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I always joke with my wife, too. I was mad. I thought I would get one of my kids. I have three of them, and none of them are left-handed. Drives me nuts. Dang it. Uh, I have one. One out of two. Okay, there we go. You won. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in your off time, when you're not working, a hard day's night, <laughs> uh, what do you like to do for fun or how do you recharge? How do I recharge? Um, more often than not, spend the time with my kids. Uh, my kids are 10, 7, and 3. Uh, the younger two are girls, my older son. I'll do anything with them. You know, my son's just getting into golf. You know, you just mentioned golf. Uh, he's getting into that. I like to try and play with him, get him out on the driving range of the course. Uh, you know, spend time by the lake, by the pool. My little one is funny. She um, she just turned three recently. She's getting loud. She's got a little personality. So we can actually like play board games and do other stuff with her now too. So uh, any excuse to spend time with them in my life is, is really what I go to. That's awesome. That's awesome. And they all change so fast too, right? Like Yeah, that's an understatement. It, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> so it's fun. It's good. Great to have that balance. Yeah, you're not kidding. And they keep us busy. So, you know, they're just starting to get into all the different sports and things. My 
uh, my middle daughter is a cheerleader and uh, my wife just started uh, the younger one doing tumbling and things like that. So it's exciting. A lot to do. Awesome. Well, Thomas, thanks so much for being here today. This has been super enlightening, so fascinating to talk about this building. And I and this is only one that you've worked on. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and knowledge today and for talking about uh, the building. Thank you for having me. It was great. Fun of fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.